The following podcast is banned in the state of Florida for talking about a dangerous leftist book, the Bible. Like the Bible, this podcast contains frank discussions on sensitive topics, including sex, violence, and cursing. Please proceed with caution. That's 93 cups and flowers. So she's making a feast. Modern versions of kashrut. It's about ethically sourced resources. This has become, for a lot of progressive Jews, the new kosher. That we shouldn't condemn our comrades who have less money than us to make those ethical decisions. This is how Abraham understands now to treat other people. That's just how people should be. You didn't show me that you loved me. You weren't following what I said to do. When we were first starting the podcast, you were talking about the same way that sort of lesson comes out in Judaism. Yeah, that there's this idea that there are ways that we should emulate godliness. I think this text and in the instruction on the hospitality, I think it's elaborating on how do you love a stranger? Mm. You know, there's a lot of talk about love, especially in the New Testament, but it's not, I feel like people don't understand how it manifests and it's all through actions. Actions are like what show love because it's not a tangible thing in any other sort of way, mm-hmm. but only through the actions. I love that in this text that Abraham acts as if these people are like so worthy of this hospitality, so worthy of everything. It's like he assumes that they're God, right? Like that (laughs) the text doesn't explicitly say it, but that he just assumes that they deserve to be treated in this way. And and that's just such a beautiful way of, of saying that this is our obligation to each other, to care for each other in this way. Absolutely. If I may add a a verse from the Book of Mormon, being the one LDS guy here, (laughs) that really adds to that. It's Mosiah 2.17. And behold, I tell you these things that you may learn wisdom, that you may learn that when you're in the service of your fellow beings, you're only in the service of your God. Mm. Like with what Michael was saying, like how you, you treat others as you would treat God, at least for us, like how you treat others is exactly how you are treating God. Mm. That makes sense because if we are all created in the image of the That's divine, what I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> then if treating each other well is coming into contact with the creation of the divine, then it's like by extension an act of worship to that divine. There's yeah. a lot of great theologies out there, a lot of great descriptions of what is God. Some of my favorites are from the book of Genesis, that we are all created in the image of of the divine, of God, of life unfolding, or however you like to talk about the big cheese. Um, (laughs) And one of my other favorites is Martin Buber, who wrote that God is the spark of electricity that surges between two people. Mm. And uh, I think it's Gnosticism that talks about the uh, the divine spark inside each person, which is also really closely related to a mystical tradition in Judaism that says that divine sparks are everywhere because when God had to shrink God's self in order to make space to create, 
there were pieces of the divine that kind of like like fell away and ended mm-hmm. up in little corners and pockets of all of creation. And so it is sort of the job of humans to find and uplift those sparks, like mm-hmm. wherever we find them. And some of them are in people. <laughs> I love that. And, you know, our, our Quaker friends have the same concept of, of the inner light that guides you in all of these ways. I, I absolutely love that. And one of my favorite conversations that I had with one of my rabbis um, was, was about that. And the fact that, you know, there is this uh, midrash that is talking about all of creation is taking place in God's womb, that, that womb that we had discussed um, in a previous episode, where all of creation is happening in God's womb and the contractions of the simsum is God giving birth to creation, right? That we're all still in the middle mm-hmm. of that, that creation is still being made in this wonderful and beautiful way. And we get to be a part of its making. <laughs> That's partnership theology, or sorry, process theology, that we are all partners in the process of creation. Oh, that's a beautiful definition of process theology. That, <laughs> that we, we keep talking about process theology on this podcast, and every time that we talk about it, I'm like, I'm almost there with you. And then I'm like, wait, but wait. And then and then somebody else says something like that. And I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, that, that's absolutely where I'm at. Um, <laughs> so, dear listener, please remember that I am not committed on one side or the other of process theology. But if I keep doing this podcast, I'm pretty sure I will be. Um, <laughs> but, but one of those beautiful uh, process theologies that, uh, again, I learned while I was studying with this rabbi was the idea that when you bless the bread and the wine at the end of the Shabbat service, um, which is a, a ceremony that also happens in Christianity that we call communion or the Eucharist, right? These these two very similar traditions are that we take something that God has made, we take the grape and we take the grain, and we transform it into something else. And then we give it back to God, and God transforms it into something else in us, Right as a blessing back to us. And here in this story, we see that happening, right? That Abraham takes what God has already given, the calf and the and the grain, and turns it into food to give to God in the form of these strangers. And then those strangers come back and give something back. They Because he gives life to them, they turn around and give life to his family. And that um, relates to these are not the Trinity. Um <laughs> In Jewish tradition, a lot of our ancients wrote that these three angels, these three agents of God, emissaries, are actually the three angels, um, Raphael, Michael, and Gabriel, and that they each had a very specific mission. Raphael's mission was to heal Abraham Mm -hmm. after his circumcision. And then of the other two, one was, I don't know which one was which, but one of them was to deliver the news that Sarah was going to get pregnant. And the other one was supposed to um, destroy Sodom, but stopped along the way to give Abraham the chance to try and negotiate. Mm. Paul brings this up in, in Hebrews. Hebrews 13 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. <laughs> this is something that always it grinds my gears when people say this. People like to make fun of the scholastic period of uh, Christianity because there were people having debates about how many angels could fit on the head of a pin. 
That debate is actually mm-hmm. really important, um, <laughs> and in part because it helps us realize that the angel's gender is angel, um, that they don't have bits like human beings do, that they are non-binary creatures that um, that contain all of these other things, right? There's that important queer theology there. But more importantly, the question is, how do angels show up in the real world? How do angels exist within our reality? And how are we supposed to treat people if we have no idea whether or not they're an angel, right? <laughs> that is the debate that's being had in, in scholastic Christianity. When they're debating how many angels can fit on the head of a pin, they're trying to say, how much space does an angel take up? Can we see an angel in a way that, that really matters to us? Or are angels just these strange little sprite creatures that exist out in the world that we're never going to encounter, that we're never going to see in our everyday lives, and so we don't really have to worry about. The argument about angels being real, now I don't have a a dog in the fight on whether or not angels are real. My pet theory is that angels are uh, are the creatures that God created in a universe before God created this one, and that they kept hanging out with God, and God decided to give them jobs sometimes. Um, <laughs> that's that's my favorite theory on angels. It's not biblically based. It's just my fan fiction. But that angels matter because they might show up as the person that we are either loving or failing to love when we do these things. And that is just a reminder. Um, Laz messaged me this morning to say, hey, don't forget to talk about the new slew of bills that are going against trans people um, right now. Trans people are angels these days because they are the folks that we're supposed to be loving, and yet as a culture, we are not loving, that we are leaving behind. Instead of getting up and running to them as the sacred guests that they are at the feast that we're about to throw, we are leaving trans people behind. And we are not just leaving them behind, We are rejecting them. We're kicking them out of the party when God calls us to say those are the people that matter most. Those are the people that you need to be inviting to this party more than anybody else. There's this line here that I love in our our script, say a little, do a lot, that here in this text, not a lot is said explicitly, but a lot happens. And that should be (laughs) our value as leftists, right? We're on this podcast so that we can say a little, and hopefully in the half an hour, 45 minutes that you're listening to this, it inspires you to go out and actually do something for our community. That's my ultimate hope, right, is that we're able to come together as a community to solve a problem that we're facing. Now, the biggest of those problems, capitalism, right, (laughs) that are rooted in all of these other problems that we can solve together because we're given simple tools, grain, grapes, community, love, family, chosen family, and together we transform those things into the kind of thing that God wants for us. So Sarah laughs to herself, right? Sarah laughs at God. And this is going to go back to a theme that I just, I talk about so often. God is a big girl, right? She can handle all of our emotions. (laughs) God can take our anger at God. God can take our frustration. God can take our sadness. And God can take our laughter, right? Sarah is sitting here, an old woman, and doesn't understand what how in the world can you say I'm going to be pregnant? I've wanted this my whole life. It's ridiculous that you're saying this to me now. And she laughs at God. And what I love 
in verse 15, she says she's frightened because she's called out for this. And then God says, no, you laughed. And I like to picture this as God in all of her glory being a sassy-ass queen. (laughs) Being a sassy-ass queen going, no, you laughed. (laughs) And calling her out for for trying to hide behind this. (laughs) So my, my take is Sarah isn't laughing at God. She's doing one of those like self-deprecating, like bitter laughs to herself. It's an internal kind of thing. So when she is publicly called out on it, like on something she was thinking to herself, yeah, you'd be scared too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought I think it's a pretty human reaction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm I don't know about in your traditions, but in Jewish tradition, sometimes there's a tendency to put the characters of the Torah up on these pedestals and yeah. make them like these perfect humans and and I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> they're <laughs> they're humans, but they're not perfect. And and that's kind of why I love them. And so, you know, here's Sarah who's not menstruating anymore, which is as far as any of us know, kind of necessary to become pregnant mm-hmm. and being told she's going to become pregnant. And she's like, <laughs> yeah, like <laughs> when hell warms over, that'll happen. Like it, it, it's, it's literally impossible. Can get hard. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> like, I mean, she's, she says, she says like, I'm literally worn out. I'm, I, like my body doesn't do the things it does it, that it used to do. All the all the piping down there is dried up. Like this isn't going to happen. Plus, like if that weren't enough, like if I mean it is enough because like if I can't have a baby, then there's no baby. But like even if that weren't enough, also my husband is old and can't have a baby. He couldn't make the baby happen either. Like there's two parts to this and both of them aren't going to be in working order for this to happen. And like, it's this, it feels like this laugh of disbelief, like, (laughs) like funny joke, you know, (laughs) me pregnant. Yeah. Hilarious. This is not happening. And then yeah, and I like the I like this idea of like, oh, somebody heard me laugh in my own head. <laughs> like, yeah, that would be terrifying to me too. Especially cuz it's just like these strangers who showed up at your house, your husband's making you throw a party for them. <laughs> and one of them is like, "Hey old lady, you're going to get pregnant." <laughs> like, that's weird. Just, like that's like that's like a okay. <laughs> it's weird, it's ridiculous. It's implausible like who wouldn't laugh like there's no way it's not a joke right but she's still polite because she's not laughing out loud she's laughing to herself like literally like to to her in her own closeness like it is to herself not to anybody else Mm. i think it goes back to something that martin buber says that god is closer to us than we are to ourselves Right. And so in this story, it is just Sarah laughing to herself. And yet the God that is there is closer to Sarah than she is to herself. Right. She laughs just to herself. And yet God hears it in this deep intimacy in a way that Sarah doesn't realize it. And it freaks her out. Right. Like (laughs) it would freak me out, too. (laughs) It's also interesting the way that God calls Sarah out, which is to Abraham but rephrasing what she said, because we all like to laugh about how she's like, my husband's so old. And that's not what God says to Abraham. 
God says, why did Sarah laugh saying, how can I bear a child because I am old? And saves Abraham the embarrassment that Sarah was thinking that like, it's not just me, it's it's my hubby here who's also impotent. <laughs> mm. Like, God drops that part and just says, why did Sarah laugh saying she's too old for this? I think God's being a good friend there, yeah. saving them from a marital dispute. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Phrase. I mean, technically, Abraham is not impotent since later on he goes to have more kids after Sarah's death. I mean, he could, Abraham could have been impotent just like Sarah. Mm-hmm. Would, like, yeah. they both could have been mm-hmm. unable to have children at that time, and then both of them were able to after that time. There's a lot to be said about age and pregnancy in people who can get pregnant. There's a lot of old science and a lot of old medical knowledge that persists, like the biological clock thing that like, you know, once you hit 40, you're not able to get pregnant as easily or you become more of a of a risk, like you're a risky pregnancy or something like that, which is potentially really old science that actually hasn't been updated or researched since days when, like, that actually was an accurate statement to make. Um, So, I mean, I'm not saying that somebody who no longer menstruates, like, that there should be new science to prove that that person can get pregnant. (laughs) I think that that's a pretty clear sign that you can't get pregnant if you're no longer menstruating, at least probably in most cases. But the idea that age is an implication about the inability to get pregnant is not as much of a thing as many of us actually think it is. If a person is menstruating, it doesn't matter if they're 65 years old. Maybe it's weird that they're still menstruating at that age. I don't know. I Menopause isn't something I've looked into yet in my life <laughs> in, in detail. But like, if you're menstruating at 65, then like, you could get pregnant. And with medicine the way it is today... It's probably not as risky as we're led to believe. We do have the highest mortality rates for people who can give birth in all, quote unquote, first world developed nations. We're we're dead last. Yeah. Yeah. The U.S. does not have a good track record for that. That is for sure. Okay, this might be way out there. Uh, Just reading a little bit into the different translations here. Verse 12. So in King James Version, it's the one I have up on my phone right in front of me. Uh, it says, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I'm waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? I think it's uh, interesting, the translation, shall I have pleasure, or I'm no longer to have children. But if I'm, if I'm looking at this correctly, the term that gets translated to pleasure there, or... Mm-hmm. Who knows what it gets translated into? Eden. Eden, exactly. Edna. Edna, and the root of which is Aden, and gone Aden is the Garden of Eden. Exactly, yeah. So there's there's that, and then also with Sarah being, I guess, called out by the Lord and feeling that that fear as the first immediate reaction is being called out to the Lord kind of struck me as a vague, vague reference to that. Garden of Eden story. I don't know if there's anything in that. I just thought it was cool. Well, I think there's something in that being Mm -hmm. that this is the second woman God directly addresses and everything. And um, 
you know, when he speaks to Eve in several chapters ago, she admits her transgression right away and she gets punished pretty bad for it. And then you have here where Sarah just lies Mm -hmm. and God's chill and he still fulfills his promise. So there's, there's that kind of change in God, I think. Um, I mean, if I had been part of that conversation, I would have been able to share this in a maybe more timely, uh, timely fashion. But that the idea that God is a brand new single parent who doesn't have parents of their own as role models um, means that God makes maybe some questionable parenting decisions, <laughs> such as the way God handles Adam, Eve, and the snake, um, and maybe now that. God has had a few children already. God's making better decisions about how to handle things like, you know, the toddlers lying. Well, first off, this is the third time that a woman is being directly spoken to by God uh, here in the text. The first, it's okay. (laughs) It's okay. The first being Eve, the second being Hagar, um, and this, the third being Mm. Sarah. Um, And and remember that three is an important numerological sign in lots of Genesis um, that we're not going to go into a ton here, but remember that there are three messengers here that (laughs) that are talking. And this is the the third woman that uh, God is speaking directly to in the text. I do want to be uh, precise here. God yeah. doesn't speak to Sarah here. You're right. You're right. The The angel says to Abraham, your wife is going to have a baby. She overhears it and laughs. And God overhears that and then asks Abraham why she laughed. Yeah. And the first words that God says directly to Sarah are, no, you laughed, <laughs> rather than all of this other information. But it's also not clear who said you laughed. That's true. (laughs) Mm. It just says said, (laughs) no, but you laughed. Yeah. (laughs) But Mm. was that Abraham or God? Because it just says God said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? And then Sarah maybe overheard that too and was like, I didn't laugh. Then maybe the voice in her head was like, yeah, you did. Mm. Maybe God's the voice in her head. Maybe Abraham was like, no, I heard that too. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Well, to, to run back, I think the connections that are being made here are really important because in Adam and Eve, the curse is, on the one hand, you will work very difficultly and toil uh, for your food, and Noah is the redeemer of that. Remember that Noah's name literally means the rest, right? That you're getting out of this terrible work, and that's the prophecy that Lamech has over Noah. And here we're seeing Eve's curse reversed as well, right? Where the difficulty of labor, we're seeing that Abraham and Sarah are having difficulty with pregnancy, and yet it is reversed here as well. And so it's really worth saying that a Christian perspective on this often looks back at the fall and says, this is the undoing of all things that were perfect and good, and now we're in this depraved state and all of these sort of things. But here in the story of Genesis, these things are wrapped back up. Like, Noah is the salvation for that issue. Sarah here has these difficulties that Eve is is experiencing and then reverses it. And so, like, I don't like talking about the fall. I like talking about 
the fact that humans are messy because God made a world <laughs> that is messy. And Eden might have been the place of delight and pleasure and all these sort of things, but that doesn't mean that humans weren't going to be messy anyway, because one of the first things that God realizes about humanity is that God made a mistake in not making a partner for the first human and has to correct that, right? And so I, I love that Rebanoia, what you were just saying with that God is a, a first-time parent that hasn't had parents to learn from. <laughs> and so, and so, you know, makes these mistakes that then God is coming back and trying to fix because God loves us, right? Because God is capable of making mistakes, just like I'm capable as a parent of making lots and lots and lots of mistakes. I forgot to change my kid's diaper when I was putting him to bed, and that's why he wouldn't go to bed tonight. And <laughs> uh, what almost made me late for this recording, right? And yet, I can still go back in love and try to correct that mistake next time. And that seems to be what God is doing here in the text. Going back to like how we need to treat people and saying a little and doing a lot, we as leftists, we say a lot. <laughs> Especially on social media. <laughs> we say a whole lot. But there's, there's so much more tangible things that that aren't as much effort as they seem that we could be doing rather than just like spouting off theory and being like, oh, well, one day we'll figure out some systems for that. When, you know, like in, in reality, people there are people actively figuring things out. Go talk to them. They exist yeah. everywhere and see where you can jump in to help. Mm. Because that's the tangible stuff that, like, really brings about hope and camaraderie, solidarity, joy. And, like, you know, eventually you can have a little party with them, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And maybe you can have three sayas of cake. 93 cups of flour. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the moral is, are you putting your money and actions where your social media post is? Mm. Snaps for that. I get criticized sometimes because I am a little bit anti-theory, uh, and, and I take that criticism absolutely. I am working my way through Das Kapital. I think it's brilliantly argued. It is fantastic philosophy. And also, every chapter that I read of that is a plant that I forget how to grow properly without checking the book. And uh, <laughs> and now, I, I think Das Kapital is a good thing to know. I think learning the Bible is a good thing to know. But if my theory is getting in the way of my praxis, it is getting in the way and it's not worth it, right? If you know the Bible so well that you can quote every single verse out of the book of Leviticus, but you don't actually know how to do any of those things that Leviticus is telling you to do, like loving the Lord your God and loving your neighbor, then you've missed the entire point. <laughs> if our theory... Mm -hmm. If, if our theory is just leading to theories and not leading to an actual change in the world, there's no point in being a leftist except maybe finding a niche where you can be kind of semi-famous among bread tube people. I don't know. Like, <laughs> we're, we're not a huge segment of the population, but we can have a huge impact if we apply ourselves to actually changing the world instead of just talking hypothetically about how we can. I think that one of the most profound things in this story, and something that Christianity just misses so often, is the fact that this child that is going to be born is named Isaac. His name is Laughter, right? That the promise given to Abraham and Sarah 
is laughter, is joy. In the midst of all of this hopelessness, it is hope, right? That Abraham and Sarah have given up. They've, they've committed to doomerism, and yet God gives them hope in the midst of this. And that, that laughter brings about the salvation of all people, right? <laughs> that laughter is the foundation here. And who is the son of laughter? A guy named Jacob, whose other name is Israel, the person who wrestles with God, right? And that's what Israel means, is wrestling with God. And so we have laughter, and then we have wrestling with God. And Christianity as a religion so often focuses on orthodoxy, right? Having the right theory and completely missing out on the point that we're supposed to be practicing these things, that we're supposed to be wrestling with these things, that we're supposed to struggle with these things and laugh while we're doing it, right? That laughter is an appropriate response to, to all of those things. And I think that that is one of the most important lessons that we need to be learning from these things, that there is always hope to be had and there's always joy to be had even in the midst of difficult things. I do find it really interesting that Isaac, that the name, by the name Laughter, and Isaac is, at least as I see it, he's one of the people that most foreshadows or symbolizes Jesus Christ. And he's also out of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the only person whose name does not get changed by the Lord. Mm. So it's a, it's a pretty important name. I never thought about that before. <laughs> That's interesting because I didn't know Isaac meant laughter, but, you know, that's a, a good thing about this podcast. I'm learning lots of new things. <laughs> I think at, at this point, it, it is really interesting that Isaac's name means laughter. And, like, now it makes sense, the Sarah's laugh thing. Because mm -hmm. doesn't she laugh when Isaac is born also? So it, it just it kind of completes the circle for her story so much better and she laughs here in like the bitter sad disbelief which is like representative of her lack of hope because like I think Abraham trusts God a whole lot more and has a lot more hope and a lot more in common like in their friendship uh with God but Sarah doesn't have like any of that promise to hold on to not really even though like in this moment god gives a concrete timeline finally for something and it's it's really nice that like isaac is like that like that gift of hope back to her not just like like her true laughter she uh she doesn't laugh when he's born but she remembers that she laughed Okay. And so it's, when I'm sorry. So yeah, no, but like you you remember that the laughter was brought up again at his birth that when he's born, Sarah says, "God brought me laughter, and so everyone who hears will laugh with me or for me." Um it and I imagine that maybe she did laugh when it actually happened or when she realized that she was in fact pregnant. Maybe that's when the second laughter happened, even though it didn't yeah. make it into the text, that it's like, instead of the, <laughs> yeah, that's not happening. It was like, ha, it happened. <laughs> like that kind of laughter, the similar disbelief, but like acknowledging that it did happen. This worked. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like who to thunk it? <laughs> well, it's really unfortunate that English doesn't have a word to differentiate the disbelief that comes from the idea that something will never happen, that there's no hope that something will happen, and the disbelief that something did just happen, and I can't believe yeah. that it just happened. 
I'm sure some language has that. Some better language than English. English is a trash language, but that's a that's a rant for another podcast. Well, we could always make up words. <laughs> we could. That's how language is. We could. Yep. <laughs> Thank you, L, Rabbi Noya, and Spencer for a wonderful conversation that uh, went in so many different directions that I had no expectation <laughs> they would go in, um, but that is is really a conversation worth having. Um, Rabbi Noya, I'm knocking on wood that you're back again soon to continue this conversation with us, and Elle and Spencer, y'all are always a pleasure. We love having y'all back as well. And thank you, dear listener, for sticking with us uh, in what I'm assuming is going to be a two-parter because I don't want to cut a single minute of this wonderful conversation. <laughs> And I so look forward to hearing your thoughts about this in the Discord. Now, past Micah, take it away. Thank you, future Micah. And of course, you, our wonderful listener. Together, we have made a wonderful and growing community on Discord that I look forward to being a part of every day. Your generous support on Patreon has already greatly increased the quality of our podcast, including this very outro. As an extra little thank you, you can get episodes early along with a bunch of other cool perks. Please follow the link in the show notes to join our Discord, Patreon, and all of the other things are mentioned throughout this episode. If you would like to reach me directly, you can reach me through the Discord or by email at thewordinblackandred at gmail.com. Now, future Micah, say the profound shit. And thank you, past Micah. Now, friends, go and laugh. In the midst of despair, in the midst of not believing that the future we need to build can happen, laugh. And laugh again when it comes. Shalom. I wrote this all down um, <laughs> because I never wanted to forget it. And in fact, I shared it in a in a group that I'm in on Facebook called Ask the Bait Midrash, where you can ask <laughs> questions where people can like give you textual sources and things. Um, so uh, my congregant's name was Bill. So that particular Shabbat, Bill was very excited to tell me a theory of his that most people hear and write off quickly. Um his theory starts by looking at Genesis 15, when Abram, before he became Abraham, cut up the various animals and then fell into a deep sleep. Bill says that this was Abram entering a time warp. Then he <laughs> saw a giant oven with smoke and fire appear amongst the meat. This is a fireball, a UFO, according to Bill. It comes and it cooks the meat. And then where does the meat go? The chapter ends, so who knows? Aha, <laughs> says Bill. But now look at 1 Kings 17, when Elijah makes the rain stop for long enough that the river dried up. And yet, every morning and evening, ravens come to him with meat and bread. Where did this miraculous food come from, Bill wondered? The meat from Abram. Thanks to the time warp, <laughs> the ravens were able to cross time and space and access the cooked meats. But what about the bread? Well, back in Genesis 18, <laughs> not long after the fireball UFO came to Earth, three humanoid figures appeared to Abraham. That's right. Aliens. <laughs> Sarah baked bread for them. Okay, it, it was cakes, but... This bread was not actually brought to the aliens to eat. So what happened to it? The ravens brought it to Elijah. <laughs> but, but, says Bill, how do we know that these men were aliens? 
they headed towards Sodom and Gomorrah, which were destroyed by a giant fireball. The same <laughs> fire that they brought in their time warp that cooked the meat. But of course, there was no language at this time for UFOs, aliens, or time warps. So the text uses words like ovens, men slash angels, and deep sleeps. So <laughs> that was Bill's theory. I, I vote we put that entire story as the bong hit at the end of the episode. 